clubhouse. Welcome back to A Galaxy Far, Far Away for the How Uncivilized podcast. This is Mark with my friend. This is not Mark. This <laughs> Maybe I'm you and you're me, Paul. Yeah, yeah. This is Paul with my friend Mark. How's it going, Mark? Oh, it's going good. What's up, Paul? I'm ready to talk about the finale. Uh, the last three episodes of, of Andor will be covering episodes... 10, 11, and 12, and, and continue to digest more Star Wars content as we get as we go along. We got um, Tales of the Jedi already, Bad Batch 2 shouldn't be too far off, and then uh, Mandalorian will be here before we know it. One way out, Paul. Good One stuff, man. Yeah, it's almost like the finale was great, but man, this 10 and 11, there was just lots of stuff there. It was a final trilogy. We sort of missed the pacing with our predictions in guessing that the prison break would occur later. But, you know, I'm okay with with that. Uh, it was sort of unexpected that such a big climactic scene would occur at the beginning of one of these triads of, of episodes. I'm also glad we didn't spend too long in the prison. So let's run down how our characters went through these final three episodes and what are the big things that happened with them and with Andor? Because, you know, it's the name of the show. So he's, he's, he's got the biggest, most important story. Or does he? Or does he? Um, let's go with Mon Mothma first. I think we were getting some of our predictions right with Mon Mothma and maybe needing to find a balance of sacrificing her, her moral convictions for the greater cause here. She did her due diligence with trying to find other ways to deal with the money. But are, were you surprised that her daughter and her potential betrothal became fair game in order to figure out how to get money to the Alliance? Yeah, I was a little surprised that you were to sell out your, you know, your firstborn or whatnot. Um, well, you know, they haven't been getting along. And <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she's like, ah, oh, she's a brat anyway. Yeah. Um, but I do think that was so cool that she figured out the gambling problem solution. I don't know about you, but when I first was like, wait, did she, she did that on purpose. I was, you know, it was, it was sophisticated and it, it was very clever. And I thought that was good writing as well. You know, we had predicted maybe she would go off planet and fully go, you know, join the rebels hundred percent. And I think, like you said, we were wrong on that, but by the end of the season, she's probably has a stronger resolve and has figured out a way to survive in the new threatening environment she lives well and with the husband Perrin you know we've never never been team Perrin and like you mentioned allowing the driver to listen in on the conversation about the gambling and all that that does serve as like a pretty useful diversion right from from what she's actually doing if if she can cast some suspicion on him uh, I mean I think we come out and might have joked about the idea that she might need to sell him out or or abandon him in some way in order to further her own cause. I would predict that we're going to see when the time comes that she flees Coruscant. She, her plan is to take her daughter with her and that then gets her out of the, the betrothal. So I think she's probably thinking of it that way. You know, it's like a temporary solution. That's what the, the best kind of survivalists in these stories do is they, they make the deal that gets them as far as they need to get. And then, 
you know, if they have to weasel out of it later, then they figure that out later. Sometimes, though, you get a red wedding and <laughs> you get all messed up for running your show like that. However, we know Mon Mothma does wind up leading the alliance later. We don't know the status of her family at that point. The daughter, though, appears to be a very traditional Chandrillan person. And although Mon Mothma may think that she wants to run off with the daughter at some point, which is a valid prediction, uh, the daughter herself might not want to. If Davos Golden's son is charming or he likes her, it, it may be one of those things where she's like, okay, get in the car. And she's like, I'm not getting in the car. Exactly. Like uh, the end of the Americans, right? Not the... (laughs) Oh, yeah, spoiler alert. (laughs) uh, Good call. There were several scenes with Mon Mothma that kind of made her overall one of my top couple of characters. It's like, you know, I like Andor because he's got the name of the show and he's the reason we're all here. And But there's not a lot to the guy just yet. And like Luthen and Mon Mothma are presenting much more interesting and complex and and um, thought-provoking and introspective type characters. Who would have guessed, you know, that casting this woman as Mon Mothma in 2005, all those years ago to, to, for the prequels, as, as a character that barely even made it on screen, I don't even know if she did. I know she made it into the deleted scenes, but I'm not sure if she made it into the actual movie. Who knew that casting her would turn out to be like such a great move because I think she's a really strong actress. No, she was awesome. Very complex character. Great acting. For me, I just want to talk about Luthen all day long. All right. Like (laughs) definitely my new, my favorite newest Star Wars character out there. I think this show at the end of the day, I like it because it does what Star Wars, what I like the best about Star Wars is it captures your imagination. It, you know, the prison, the, the heist, these complex characters like Luthen that I think I'm going to argue, Paul, that this dude is probably a gray Jedi, if you will. Um, So we can talk about that. The long fabled gray Jedi. Yeah. The long fabled gray (laughs) Jedi that we've never gotten to see. I think that's what we're, I think that's what it's so we can, we can talk about pros and cons arguments for that. But yeah, the whole culture with Ferrex, I mean, it just, it did that in a, in a more grown up kind of way. I think people, I don't know what the reviews or whatever, but I think a lot of people like it. I think the viewership has been a little lower, but I was real happy with it. What about you at a high level? Oh, very happy. I was thinking about this the other day and it's like the Mandalorian fills the childlike wonder that I have in me that still draws me to Star Wars, you know, getting to see a little bit of the force, some action, kind of a bad guy of the week sort of scenario with a lot of the episodes. And uh, it fulfills that need. But there's still the adult fan that still comes back to Star Wars and wishes a lot of times, particularly with the movies, that my adult sensibilities were addressed kind of like they were in Rogue One. Yeah, I think the expectation for the show was, oh, okay, it's going to be backstory to Rogue One. It's going to make that better. It's going to make that, that that whole story better. But we didn't probably expect it to make all of Star Wars better. And, uh, you know, uh, kind of really told us the, the, telling the story of the early inner workings of the rebellion and, and a lot of the, for the, sure. the dark under underbelly of that. So that's, uh, I don't know that we expected that. I was only expecting Andor's story. I was not really expecting 
such a deep dive into the compromises that had to had to be made by these major characters in order to make the alliance come to be you know by the time we see it we don't see much of it in a new hope right we see them they're kind of they're hidden on Yavin and they have enough ships to make a defense. And that's about it. They seem a lot more organized by the time they get to Hoth, but they got to get the heck out of there because the bad guys are coming. And then Return of the Jedi, that's all the cards are on the table, right? And that's a pretty big fleet that they get to pull out. And we have the kind of luxury of having seen the Alliance at its finest through those years. And you might get this impression that just sort of the altruism of standing up against an unfair government would have been just like this uniting cause that was just so obvious. Like everybody would want to do that, sure. But here we're seeing it's it's quite a bit harder than that to get people to, to act. And the people in charge needed to, as we're seeing with like Mon Mothma, rationalize what they want and what they're willing to sacrifice. And as like Luthen points out when he's talking to Lonnie, he's sacrificed everything. That was so powerful and awesome. We'll come back to that. But but yeah, I think this show did a lot of that of pontificating. I think in the season finale, there was a whole lot of this. The nature of the light and the dark and the rebels and the, the empire with Nimick's uh, manifesto talking about control being unnatural, kind of like the dark side. You were talking about the, the nature of the rebellion, the spontaneous kind of emergence he talked a lot about. And then I guess Andor kind of had a flashback to Clem and he kind of made a similar point. And I think Andor kind of realized that, that, you know, it's not like he's the best fighter in the world. He was always only having success through the sacrifice of others. And, you know, a, a, as that urge to escape and be free or just submit to tyranny and and be killed in that prison for your life, or you can choose to resist it. So that that really drove the, his character arc home of, hey, you know, it was like an extreme example of that philosophy. And he chose to fight. And then I really liked that line of Nimick's oppression is the mask of fear. You know, lots of really deep stuff, a lot of very Yoda sounding stuff. <laughs> yeah. But but if you think about it, you know, these people, it's like, why are, why is Deidre trying to control everything? Why are they all trying to, and he's saying it's an expression of internal conflict. So I thought that was, that was great when um, she got caught in the crowd and, and at the finale on Ferrix, the, the fight. And uh, you could see she played fear really, she was really scared. She played fear. And of course she was arrested or rescued by Dumb and Dumber and all that. Uh, <laughs> oh man but yeah that's you know you see that that expression of internal conflict of the oppressor um that mask com coming down and then you see the fear behind it in, in Deidre and uh I was like wow this is some deep stuff I liked the approach that he had that you know he went and to the beach planet recovered his stuff the book must have been with the stuff so that's when he starts re or not rereading but reading it you know, he's got a lot of time on his hands traveling to and fro. They don't show that to us, but you can imagine there's some downtime. And so he's starting to internalize the words. And it may not mean much yet, but, you know, it means more than it did because he, he's gone through the whole switcheroo on the sentencing aspect of being a, an inmate with the, with the Empire. So, that you know, that stings. But then... You know, going to Ferrix and seeing what he saw there, 
and and having just read those words and his words have a deep meaning with just just a few sentences and um and that works well for for tv and for guys like me <laughs> yeah there's little quotes thrown in there he had one that was like predicting a tipping point and i wonder or to me that made me think of Luke blowing up the Death Star, you know, that's the tipping point of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you made, if that made you think of that as well. Yeah, it did. And I like how you were just saying that this makes all Star Wars better. It makes Rogue One better. But, you know, with that post credit scene where we get sort of like the current status of the Death Star, and we know that at the beginning of Rogue One, they're just installing the reflector dish in the main gun of the of the death star fully operational yes exactly and so it's like we're getting to see a clock form so did you find the cutscene on the internet or were you like me just uh enjoying the music and i was like what i knew it was coming so i did i did fast forward a little bit I mean, I don't want to shortchange the music. The the composer has done a phenomenal job with the music. And it is not classic John Williams score, but it is not any less of music because of it. It is it stands on its own as being great Star Wars music also. Yeah, this show was really well thought out. And that the finale with the music, the it kind of had like a old circus carny vibe or something going on with the and marching band. Um Oh yeah, I liked that music. It was it was beautiful. And then and then I I didn't catch this, but someone else pointed out every intro, every episode, the music was kind of different, but it all kind of was related to that final funeral uh, music. Oh yeah, every time the Andor thing like flipped down, it was it was different. It was like the same theme, but it but it was presented differently. Whether it was like horns or like techno, or it was different every time. Um, But the the funeral dirge. I wanted. I also wanted to discuss while we're on the topic of music, is like that band. I think it's totally symbolic of the rebellion. You know, they don't get together much because you know they're just a volunteer funeral company band, and so they don't practice together much. And so it, you know, when they start to play, they're all kind of going in the same direction. They're all kind of playing the same music, but they're out of tune. And it doesn't sound that great, but they're getting there. You understand what they're doing. The music, it comes across, especially at the point when they, when they go kind of double time later, when they get closer to, to the stone placement, the music actually kind of clicks over and it not only gets faster, but it seems to get better too. And I think that's maybe if we're talking about tipping points, foreshadowing that kind of thing. All through this shitty volunteer uh, <laughs> funeral band. <laughs> yeah, but it had a lot of character and culture and history. Oh, yeah. And, I, yeah, and that yeah. was the point that Marva makes as a hologram, which was cool. The idea of you know speaking at your own funeral, I guess. Just saying that the, the Empire kind of erases you. You know, it turns you into a robotic brick in the wall type thing. And it's erasing Ferrex and its culture. And, uh, you know, she referenced the wound that... That won't heal, presumably in the center of the galaxy, presumably Order 66 or just the formation of the Empire and yeah, that they thrive in darkness, you know, and then fight. And then you have the, the big, uh, the big fight. 
That was that was cool. Big big riot scene. I kind of thought that the Empire would step in as the seditious stuff was coming out of Marva's recording a little earlier than they did. Uh, they actually get to the point where she's like <laughs> telling them to fight with her. Okay, cut this off. <laughs> yeah, I guess the only the explanation would be that Deidre wanted wanted to put him in a box and watch him and find you know trying to fish out Andor. Yeah, but yes. so that's the only explanation. But yeah, I, I agree with that. It's like, yeah, they wouldn't really stand for that. I don't think. Well, a lot of the other officers had totally different instincts of how to handle this thing. I think by all accounts, Deidre screwed this up. I mean, they didn't come back with Andor. They didn't come back with Axis. They lost Bix. You know, there was a riot. You know, this is going to be a bad deal for her when we catch up with her and uh, Colonel Eularen or whoever dresses her down next time we catch up with her. But yeah, yeah, she she had a reasonable plan. It's just that Andor, you know, you're this is his planet. This is his way of doing things. You're, I don't know that you're going to beat him at his own game like that. I like the guy. I mean, when you were saying that he's not the best fighter, it reminded me of a thought that I had. Like, he no, he's definitely not. He's not the best anything. He's just okay at a lot of things. And he never loses track of the stakes. Just like for the very first discussion we had about Andor and him needing to put down those guards that were hassling him on Morlana in the, in the first episode, realizing that things had gone kind of south with the first guard, so he needed to to take out the second one because he couldn't have a witness um, and him being very decisive about it. Like when he's breaking into the hotel and he, and he gets into the scuffle with the one guard that <laughs> Deidre left because she, she called everybody else outside and uh, she get he gets him down on the ground and it's, you know, it's, it's not like he wants this guy coming back. So he puts the gun on his chest and fires straight into him. That's not a very Star Warsy move. Usually it's just like, well, he's knocked out. I guess we just move on to the next fight. Not Andor. No, he knows he knows what's at stake here. It's it's interesting. They really built his character up. I mean, he's really smart and hyper observant. And like, I liked how, you know, he calculated that only Kino in the prison could really make this happen. Like, he's probably calculating. Okay, what's the odds we can actually escape? He's like, I can't rally these people to get the numbers we need to do it. And so. You know, that's why he worked on on him so, so much to convince him. And of course, Andy Serkis was just great. And he's a completely different type of character, very emotional, very intense. Yeah. And, uh, you know, both of them, it was really fun scenes because they're, they're both good actors. And Kino never really acknowledged Andor and was like, OK, we're, we're doing this until right before it was going down. And he was walking. <laughs> I don't know if you noticed that moment he walks by and he goes one way out, you know, and it was like, OK, he's on board. It's go time. Um, and that actor, you know, he does fear very well. It kind of reminded me of Harrison Ford. He was always recognized for his ability to play fear. You know, like when he gets scared, you could really like see it. And uh, he talked, I think he talks about in interviews, you know, you don't see enough of that. Like actors are like, oh yeah, I'm just, I've got this covered, you know? And he's like, oh, yeah. you know. And then of course they had the callback to the boring conversation anyway, Mike, um, from, <laughs> you know, did you notice that one? Yeah. I thought the prison break was fantastic. They outsmarted him at their own game. I didn't see it coming that Kino uh, wouldn't wouldn't know how to swim. Do you do you suppose that he jumped off anyway, rather than wait around for shuttles of stormtroopers to arrive? I heard that uh, 
uh, was it Tony Gilroy? They he said, well, we didn't see him die on camera, so he's he left it open there that you know he could be alive. But yeah, that was a uh, let's we're all pulling for Kino. Maybe I was thinking maybe they would try to commandeer a ship or a boat yeah, or something. I was thinking that too, but maybe they yeah. don't have a docking facility. Like when they dropped off the prisoners, they just kind of let them out at like a door on the side of the thing, you know, and they just hmm. kind of like hopped over the gap, <laughs> and then the ship left. You know, they didn't mind, never sit down. Mind the gap. <laughs> exactly. We were talking about Luthen for a second All right, there. Luthen. Can we talk about Luthen now, Paul? Yes, we can. Here, you want to hear my arguments for why he's probably a gray Jedi? Yes, I do. I made up. Okay. All right. So, and probably rip this off from others, but, you know, he talked a lot about inner peace and calm, very Jedi-ish type stuff. Shares dreams with ghosts. So... You know, he referenced 15 years ago, he came up with this, what he called an equation. So I'm, uh, I'm assuming, you know, if he was a Jedi, um, his friends are killed in Order 66. He shares his aspirations for the future with ghosts and he calculates that he has to become like his enemy to be able to defeat his enemy. Uh, who knows if he came up with this on his own or if this, is this in conjunction with someone else like Bail Organa? We don't know, but he talks about using the tools of my enemy. So, you know, he, he uses deception, warfare, violence, uh, made his mind a sunless space. Kind of just talking about do bad to do good type of thing. And also a recognition that there's no coming back from the dark side. Kind of a Yoda-esque type deal. So it seems kind of weird type of thinking for a, for a normie, if you will. <laughs> you know? And then, of course, oh, did you, did you notice? And I didn't notice this during the show. I saw this online. In the shop, there was a. We talked about this last time. There was both a Jedi and a Sith holocron. Uh, of course, the the Kyber crystal connection that he yeah, gave to Andor. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then you know, in the, what was it, Episode Eleven? That great scene with Saw, where he, he had what looked like a lightsaber. So yeah, what what, what is your takes uh, on that argument? I think those are good points. I can't strike any of those down. I liked how he uh, he kind of empathizes with Lonnie. About, oh, he's got a newborn. He's like, yeah, that's great. You got a newborn. And then, by the way, he kind of like implies like a threat. You know, he's like, oh, yeah. He's like, I, I can relate to your day-to-day stress and all that. <laughs> yes. And then threaten the chest. So it's very back and forth, light and dark type of thing. But, man, that scene was, was great, wasn't it? It's like in the it's like in the Sopranos when Tony starts talking about your family. You don't want Tony talking about your family. You don't want Tony thinking about your family. And that's the same sort of thing as this. You don't want basically a terrorist to know more than they need to know about your family. And that's where poor Lonnie's stuck. Yeah, his yearly performance review uh, didn't go so well. <laughs> he wanted out, man. I also like the idea, if you're thinking of a Jedi, their whole life is sacrifice. You know, they've, they're a sacrifice from their, from their family to have been raised by the temple, they basically lose a child, you know, and the, and the child loses their family. There's, there, there's the sacrifice, right? So perfect camouflage for someone who only knows sacrifice, like a Jedi, would be like an antiquarian, like he is, who, who finds expensive things, is a connoisseur of expensive and rare things, and then sells them for a markup, you know, that <laughs> that's a very un-Jedi way to exist and a perfect place for one to hide if in fact he is one. 
Yeah, and Luthen on Ferrix at the end was kind of strange because, you know, I kind of half expected him to pull out a lightsaber and jump in and, you know, fight the Empire. But it's ironic that this potential Jedi rebel leader is there to kill another rebel to cover his own butt and doesn't really even care about what's going on. But then, I, I don't know about you, but I got the sense that he was genuinely inspired by what was happening on Ferrix as he was watching, just basically watching the show. And then, you know, of course, at the end... Um, when Andor was like showing his smarts again, because he he observed Luthen from the tower, and was like, well, "Why is he here?" He's like, "Oh, he's probably here either to kill me or to bring me in." So he, he presented with that choice, and Luthen was very happy about that. So yeah, good stuff. Well, and we had to go with Andor through all of these things for him to get to that point where he wants in with whatever it is that Luthen is is doing. There's a version of Andor probably much earlier in his life, pre-prison term, where it would have been more instinct to just... I mean, he had the jump on Luthen. He could have killed him. In pop, just, pop quiz, Paul. How yeah. did he know where Luthen's ship was? Well, he knew Luthen was there, and he knew where Luthen parked before. So That's what I thought, too, yeah. Because yeah. they escaped together that first time, yeah. Luthen will need to tighten up his own tradecraft if, if he's going to keep going out into the open like this because you're not supposed to do that. You're not supposed to reuse places, even though they're good. That's a great way. If you establish any kind of pattern, that's that's how you're going to get caught. And uh, so, yeah, he'll need to, if he ever goes back to Ferrex, he's got to find someplace else to park. I don't imagine we would, even though they've built that big, beautiful set I think our story's done there. You know, Brasso left and Bix left and B left. So I think we're done on Ferrix. Oh, yeah, for sure. Another bit on Luthen, the way he handled his ship versus that small cruiser, the Arrester class, I guess it was. That was great stuff. That was really Star Wars-y, like... How come we haven't seen someone try that trick before? It makes perfect sense, actually. Oh, that was the coolest space fight sequence we've seen in a long time. And just the whole, I liked the technicals of it. It's like, oh, you got to, you got to go try to go faster out of the tractor beam so that when you release the countermeasures, it probably has more force and is able to mess up their ship. And, um, it, and he, and, and just his deception on display as he kind of socially hacks them while he's preparing to kill him. And I love that little flight of the navigator droid. <laughs> <laughs> You know, if you want to look for reasons why they're showing us that Luthen is a, is a Jedi, then those twin beams that come out of the side of his ship that he, when he's doing that roll where he just like cuts the TIE fighters in half, those look pretty lightsabery. Yeah, I guess maybe you could Space say his kyber crystal that he, that he had was possibly to fuel for those things. Well, and it's very Jedi kind of thing, cutting things in half, uh, <laughs> as opposed to poking holes in them. So, yeah. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Because, like, in the game, um, Jedi... Fallen Order? What was it? Yeah, Fallen Fall. Order. Exactly. Mm -hmm. there's, the, there's the Jedi mentor that you meet that has turned herself off from the Force. So... Mm -hmm. It's, it's so that she can't be felt, but in exchange, she's just like everybody else. She can't access it either. And so that's sort of established that that's, that that's something that, that a Jedi can do. What about the decision point to leave 
the fate of Krieger up to Saw Gerrera. Wasn't that scene so great? I mean, just like I love that because he knows Saw is kind of <laughs> a little off his rocker. And uh, he starts getting paranoid. He's like, hey, concentrate. Listen to me, you know. <laughs> and he like pulls a gun and, like just to capture his attention and make his point quickly. I just thought that was amazing. Really good stuff. But yeah, I think uh, I liked how he was thinking it through in real time and probably like, oh, should I tell Saw this? Probably shouldn't. Okay, I'm going to tell it to him. Fine. Okay, well, I guess it's up to you, you know. I guess he's really quick on his feet. And he, he figured, well, I guess if Saw enters the picture, we could probably win. So up to you. You want to go for it? That's what That's I was cool. thinking. Like, mm-hmm. like he, at a certain point, some of these people are not interchangeable. You need some more than you need others. And at that second, he had to pick and he went with Saw. Call it war. Yeah. And he had to bet that Saw would see that and not sell him out, not kill him on the spot side with him in the future a lot of things (laughs) you know it it was a pretty big moment and you know Forrest Whitaker always does a great job that's uh it's interesting to see that younger version of Saw than we got in Rogue One yeah there's also the calculation that you know they would be second guessing if they don't get that win but if they get that win they're going to be even more cocky and not suspecting anything so there was a lot of thought that went into that it's very you know devious shit you know when you like when you look at, say, the thinking that had to go into Intel received in the real world, our world, during World War II with like the Enigma devices, whenever they would capture one of those things from the Nazis, that would they would be able to break codes for some amount of time before they got figured out and the code got replaced. But the Allies would need to decide what intel they wanted to take advantage of because once they did, they might get found out that they had <laughs> broken the code, you know? Right. Yep. So is it better just to keep getting all these, like, small victories or, or do you need to, unfortunately, let your guys die so that you can get the bigger score later? Yeah, what a, what a crazy calculation. Yeah, I mean, I am glad I am nowhere near that kind of decision-making. Fubar stuff. But Luther's there and he's ready to do it. And it's why he is a very compelling character and why they got such a powerful actor to play him. Yeah. I mean, you might be able to think of a few other guys that could have done it, but he brings the necessary bearing and gravity to everything that he does. He's got the gravelly voice. He's kind of a bigger guy on screen. Is Yeah. Everything that he's doing with Luther works for me. Yeah, he was rocking the Sith cape type deal when he met with Lonnie. You know, I was like, yeah, yeah, you know, cut that guy a check. Let's get him paid for next season. All right, we, for he, sure. he can't he can't go anywhere. <laughs> Shoot, give him his own show. All right, after this one, the, do- <laughs> the Luthen show, Luthen and yeah. Luthen and the Fondor. Oh, there you go. Yeah. So while while we're talking about the person uh, looking for Luthen. Stidra Miro, the ISB agent that is super ambitious. She, she might have been actually the reason she got her or, or created this this plan that didn't work out on Ferrix is maybe she is starting to feel that inherent arrogance that always goes along with imperial leadership in Star Wars. You know, there's very few imperial leaders that we ever meet that are just efficiently doing their job well 
right or wrong, whether you agree with their politics or not, they're still actually just good at doing their job. We don't see a lot of those Imperials. We usually see people that wind up kind of pompous and full of themselves. And maybe that's where she's getting, you know, with her approach to Cyril, for instance, or her approach on Ferrix. Yeah, then they're they're all trying to one up each other yeah. to get to gain favor up the chain. So I think maybe you know we had an allusion to that, like uh, watch your back. It's like yeah, you, you're climbing a ladder, but watch your back. I think now, like you you mentioned earlier, that that was a defeat on Ferrix. They didn't get access. They didn't. You know, it was kind of a total fail. Um, and then there's no sign of an organized rebellion since they gave up Krieger and wiped the uh, the bad taste from Palp's mouth. Right. As it were. So, yeah, maybe she'll be knocked back a peg here in the uh, beginning of season two. And she'll be like, have this wild conspiracy about a rebel that no one in the Empire really believes. Well, you don't get to fail long under ISB control. You know, you don't even get to really have fallen behind on your reports for a meeting before they take your planets away from you and give them to somebody else. (laughs) So this would be a pretty major failure for her. And she surprised me all season long, actually. I mean, when I saw her at first and she was still trying to make her reputation and her and herself known to her superiors, I was thinking maybe there's some chance that she could go either way. But her actions as she went more and more through the season told me that, no, she is hardcore, especially when she gets to Dr. Gorst and uh, the treatment of Bix. Torture is something that's been around in several Star Wars movies but still this maybe maybe it's because she's a woman but we haven't seen exactly that woman to woman sort of thing before in star wars maybe that's what's leaving an extra yucky taste in my mouth for for deidre but she's smart you know she keeps insisting that that we try to get living hostages she's upset with the krieger raid because we didn't get living hostages there she wants andor taken alive which is why she's demanded on this certain kind of approach to capturing him rather than just you know nailing him from afar with a sniper what do you suppose is going on with her and cyril karn <laughs> He kind of had like a sociopathic thing going where he, he wasn't scared at all, even though there was all this, this violence, but she was, she was, as we talked about before, super afraid. And then he, he kind of did his thing, but I think she's going to just realize that he's like her, uh, puppy dog. She could put him in play. She can put him on the chessboard. So I'm guessing that's what will end up happening is she's probably going to get demoted and then he's going to be a resource for her and play some sort of role in the second, in the second season, I would imagine good thinking oh you know what i want to say i read that he's not he wasn't invited back and he's not in production oh really yeah i did see that so i think he's out which is interesting from someone real like star wars theory or someplace i don't remember where i saw it but you know okay let's give that a uh asterisk but yeah i don't think he's coming back which yeah it's kind of is like why would they build that up I was totally wrong because remember, I thought he was going to be like Andor's arch nemesis and all that. I was like, no. Because his character stands to do anything. Like you just mentioned, he could be a very pawn like figure for Deidre. And he could also stand to do that, but then upstage her later and betray her and do a very empire thing. And all of a sudden, he's in and she's out. That'd be interesting. Yeah. Because yeah. he's motivated to make something of himself, you know. Those two 
winding up together at the very end there on Ferrix, him rescuing her from the mob. I don't know. Something something made me think that those two were going to kiss. Did you get any uh, kiss uh, vibes from those two? I got a, that's what Karn would like, but. uh... (laughs) (laughs) She seemed utterly confused by the idea that this might be a kissing moment. She just seemed really freaked out by what had happened. I think she was just, I guess a thank you's in order, you know? Yeah. (laughs) You ever play um, Battlefront on Xbox or computer or any of that? I think the OG a long time ago. Okay. Well, there's a current iteration of it. And officers are a valid choice to play. However, they only have a pistol and a couple other weapons that deploy kind of slowly. So to get good at being an officer takes just a lot of elbow grease because you die a lot because you don't shoot very fast. And um, that display of hers was just like oh my god when she tries to pull her pistol out and it gets like slapped out of her hand like first thing oh my god i was just thinking to myself if she, if we were playing like a game she this would have been like rolling a one <laughs> <laughs> noob alert <laughs> exactly you drop your gun and it gets kicked under the mob is what the game master would say if i had to predict for her i think she's gonna get slapped down and feel even more like she needs to prove herself that might make her more dangerous for the guy, for our guy, and Andor. Let's talk about Andor. Yeah, the events of the prison break and pretty much even the the following episode. Yes, Andor does a lot of stuff, but it's not. It it gets kind of summed up with you know he escapes from prison and um, gets off the planet. <laughs> you know, the important stuff happens all on Ferrix and trying to figure out like what kind of guy is Andor going to be? Is he part of this rebellion? Is he part of, is he, is he going to rescue Bix? Can he rescue Bix? Is he what? And, and I have to say like all those results, him helping get his friends out, him getting Bix out, all those are both believable and exactly what I would have wanted for the guy. How did you feel watching how things turned out specifically for Andor? Yeah, I think it was a big moment there um, when he after after the escape, and I guess he was with his his bud that shows back up in Rogue One on uh, Niamos, Niamos, um, uh, you know, and it was a beach scene where he was on the phone. He learned about his Marva's death. To me, that was kind of like his his Luke Skywalker twin sons moment, a little bit of strings mm. orchestra playing, where he was at the beach before for fun and pleasure, and he kind of has gone through this experience, and now his uncle Owen and Aunt Brew are toast, uh, s'mores. And then, you know, it also reflects uh, his eventual death on the beach in Rogue One. That slots in pretty well. I mean, yeah, we know Star Wars as a two-hour movie and how those elements fit in in that structure, but it's the same here. It's just spread out over several more uh, episodes and, and stories, but it's the same exact hero's journey structure. Yeah, and George Lucas talked about the rhyming. You have these, uh, we've talked about this before, but just, you know, these themes that hit over and over again or these points and the, the arcs that recur in different ways. So I think, I don't know I don't know who, wrote, who all wrote it, if it was just Tony Gilroy, but you can tell they get Star Wars pretty well and just put a new spin on it. So that was awesome. 
Well, and he gets just stories, you know, go and look at Tony Gilroy's credits. You will find a lot of stuff that you've seen and like, or would probably want to watch and then will like after you see it. <laughs> Interesting. Well, it makes me want to do that. Yeah. I mean, if you like the Bourne movies, he wrote a bunch of them. So yeah, the, he's, he's a talented guy, knows storytelling and he's learned Star Wars and he's melded them together to make pretty good stuff. And get paid some paper. I sure hope so. I hope, I hope he gets, you know, when you see things like viewership isn't what we thought it was going to be, then when you, you know, that they've been approved for two 12 episode seasons, but then concurrently you hear things like, well, actually the AMC canceled a show that they had previously renewed and other, other channels are doing similar things. You wonder if Disney won't renegotiate. Well, tangent, do you see uh, Bob Iger changing things now coming back? What does that mean for Star Wars? Well, I mean, a lot of Disney Star Wars was made under his watch. It's really the last three years that caused the investors and the, and the board at Disney to toss out JPEG, right? And I think the, what if I understand that there's a couple things at stake here. One is like whatever's happening at the parks and no one likes, <laughs> and, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Disney plus, And that seems to be the thing that, that got JPEG tossed out and um, his approach with that. Why does that matter? Well, because that's the vehicle that we're using to show all this Star Wars. So will that mean changing the content, slowing it down, spacing it out, producing more, which I kind of doubt. I think it will have an impact. What it will be, I don't have any insight to know what his beef, what anyone's beef with any particular aspect of Disney Plus was. I do know that when they released Solo, right on the heels of The Last Jedi, but they'd already committed to the five Disney movies and their release schedule. I do remember that Iger had said that they were going to slow down on Star Wars content at that point in 2018. Translation, they didn't know what the heck to do because they, <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I mean, I hope that Bob Iger has kind of admitted that he screwed over George Lucas. So I'd love to see, this is, you know, not going to happen, but if you were to bring back George and be like, Hey, let's do seven, eight, nine in the form of these TV shows with Dave Filoni and John Favreau and you guys do your thing and take the story forward as you see it in the Mandalorian Ahsoka timeline and just build it from there instead of, and it, it will basically like a separate timeline from the sequel trilogy. That would be incredible. And it's not entirely unprecedented. I mean, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen just because of the expense. But if you go and look at your local comic shop, you might find issues of something called The Star Wars, which was the original title of the first, well, maybe not the first, but, but somewhere in the early stages of the scripts that Lucas wrote. I think it was after Mace Windu and the Jedi Bendu. Definitely after that, there was a version called The Star Wars. And that was what Ralph McQuarrie based a lot of his artwork on, was reading that. And so they made a comic book of that script. And it's the story of Star Wars, but in that earlier version of that script. You ever see that? No, but I've seen a lot of his artwork. It's awesome. Yeah, yeah. If you go, if you find the Star Wars, so you might recall hearing like at one stage, Obi-Wan Kenobi 
was still general Obi-Wan Kenobi and he was kind of the Han Solo and Obi-Wan Kenobi figures kind of mixed into one. So that's the version of like, say, Obi-Wan that exists in the Star Wars. Hmm. Yeah, it was like Starkiller and all that. Yeah, yeah, all that. I, I only point that out just to say, like, it's not unheard of. You know, like Marvel has its What If series, which addresses things that, that did eventually make it into the movie. You know, it had the uh, Captain Carter version of Captain America, and that made it into the Doctor Strange movie. So, you know, it's not... You know, Disney has, has dabbled with alternate versions of, of our stories, We've kind of rushed through it, but we've basically covered all three episodes of the final arc of the first season of Andor and how it relates to our major characters. Do you have any closing thoughts on the first season, Mark? Do we know when season two is coming out? I guess it's, I think I, I think I saw maybe possibly by the end of the next year or it'll be uh, early 24. I'm thinking it's 24. I think that's what I've seen the most smoke come out of is 2024. It's like that in the Cybertruck. Never, it's never going to happen. No, no, this is closer than that, I think. Um, <laughs> now that Twitter has gotten the boss's uh, attention all wrapped up. <laughs> but yeah, so we've got this. We've got, like I said earlier, there's Bad Batch coming out relatively soon. Then Mandalorian, I think... Ahsoka is probably the next one that's closest to being ready. Yeah. That, yeah. I think that's right. And there's that skeleton crew, I think it is. That's, I don't know if that's end of next year or. Things keep changing the further you go out mm -hmm. for, for sure. And like you mentioned with Iger's uh, rehiring, you may get another shuffle or uh, spreading things out. Yeah. I could see where things get kind of smushed out a little bit, but on the other hand, you know, they, they need to balance all of their properties and put things out at a pace that keeps people uh, subscribed. You know, not so they just enroll for a month and then watch everything and then leave. They don't want people to do that. They, so they want people to be like, well, so many things are coming out next month. I might as well stick around. Right now, they don't necessarily do that. Yeah, their pace is a little slower than that. So they got to catch up. Produce yeah. more content, man. They got the volume. Let's go. Well, and or or maybe they need to expand what they're doing with maybe some of their other properties. Right now, it's pretty much Star Wars and Marvel that buoy up, I think, what people come to Disney Plus to watch. Yeah, and if they rush it and they put out bad content, then you have a risk of screwing up the franchise. Exactly. I mean, I don't know if you spent any time watching She-Hulk, but let me just <laughs> save you the time. <laughs> don't bother. Um, you'll have more fun watching a lot of other things. And that's... I think one of those problems that you, that you, that maybe help was held against Chapek was, was like, maybe he sat on Feige to be like, crank it out, Kev. And so they need to loosen up from the original vision of what they want to do so that you can let crap sneak in and you get, start with WandaVision. Everybody loves WandaVision. Then you wind up with She-Hulk and it's more divided on who likes <laughs> She-Hulk. <laughs> Uh, Star Wars hasn't been quite as fertile territory, I guess, for Disney to crank things out as quickly. However, you know, you do see varying levels of quality. I think Andor is tops. And people will say Mandalorian. I'm saying Andor, you know, in terms of just like production quality and story and, 
and fitting into the universe and telling us the story that we wanted to know and and all that. Mandalorian second, but then like when you say look at Boba Fett, I liked Boba Fett, but there's a lots of parts of it that I'm like that was so not done great. I mean, if you tell me the story of the book of Boba Fett, I'd be like, that's a great story. Yeah. He, he learned from the Tusker Raiders. He, he befriended them. He led their tribe on a, on a raid, on a train. And he built his up, up his little army and his, but when you see how they decided to present it and some of the corniness that was built into it, you're like, oh man, that's not great. What, whatever, whatever. Yeah, but it's cool. I, I mean, I don't like. I don't. I don't hate it. I like it. But yeah, but. yeah. It's just like you said. It's it's the more very George Lucasy Star Wars, which we all know and love, and it's building on that. It kind of has that same style, that aesthetic. Um, and then this Rogue One really is a movie, and then this show have a little bit more, a little darker, a little bit more of a nuts and bolts, mm-hmm. um, uh, feet on the ground type of approach. And let's just let's keep going with both those tracks yeah they feed both sides of what i want out of star wars but but I, my message would be don't abandon this side once Andor's is done mm-hmm. keep feeding the adult star wars fans too basically make like uh westworld and star wars or something like that <laughs> <laughs> we will watch it. like canto bite nights right oh yeah see they they referenced my favorite all-time star wars scene right there ever i i'm, I'm getting sarcasm. a little sarcasm dripping through the mic there um <laughs> oh, you mean the scene they could have cut out of that movie completely and it would have been a better movie for it. That scene? Ooh, it would be a short movie if they cut. Oh, never mind. <laughs> All right, Mark. Well, thanks for joining me on this final episode of the first season of Andor. And uh, I look forward to talking more Star Wars with you in the future as more stuff comes out if you're game. Likewise, Paul. Enjoyed it. It's been fun. All right, Mark, uh, if people want to find you on the interweb and harass you, where would they look? Uh, Jiggy Nut on Elon Musk's Twitter. And I am Paul V. Daly or Pod Clubhouse. Um, you can reach me either way. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so that other people and Star Wars fans can find it and enjoy it. Thanks a lot. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.